It's time for a conversation about a book that matters. This is The Book Nook. Amusing Ourselves to Death, a Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business by Neil Postman. Forward. We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we, at least, had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression and to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we'd be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and nationalists who were ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. And so begins Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. This book has sold millions of copies. Obviously, it's a little bit out of date. 1984 was when this book came out. Um, and he chose the year, 1984, to write and publish this particular work. Why? I mean, it's there in the foreword, but because there was a, there was another book called 1984 um, written by um, George Orwell. And and so Postman's basically saying, was he right? Or was the Huxley, was Aldous Huxley's vision of the future more akin to what we're seeing happening in America today? All right, so here's what we want to do to, to get this conversation started. This is kind of a, a, a work of um, cultural philosophy, I guess you could say. There's a lot of philosophical ideas, but it's at a popular level. It's not, it's not a technical work. It's written in an accessible way, but... Uh, be that as it may, it still has some philosophical ideas in it that I think we need to try to unpack here at the beginning so that everyone who's listening understands the argument of the book. Um, so how would you guys summarize the, 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 the core of his argument, of Neil Postman's argument about television and its impact in our culture? I'm going to try to put it into a couple of short statements that 
first, the form of communication shapes the meaning that communication can bring effectively. That television has changed our culture from a culture of text or words to a culture of images and that this transition has come with a change from a culture obsessed with information to a culture obsessed with entertainment. And that has forced us to trivialize basically everything we talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else. Yeah, I think that's right. I think maybe to emphasize maybe one or two aspects of what Kyle just said, um, that the, the nature of the medium of TV in this particular case forces and constrains the kind of content that, that can exist within that environment. And so it's the nature of the medium itself that prohibits television from being useful for anything other than entertainment. That, that's kind of his argument that you can want to use it for something else and you can try to use it for something else. But at the end of the day, if you're going to have an audience, it's only useful to entertain the audience. And only if you're offering entertainment will you have an audience. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say that it, it seems that <clears throat> it, it's become television has become for many, the only means by which they get their understanding of what truth is or what they should care about um, in this world. And so it, when you you know go through the book and he talks about the way uh, television shows are formed, it's very fragmented and you get bits and pieces. And so I think it's hindered people's ability to even care about um, getting their eyes off of a screen and getting back to print in order to spend any length of time reading um, and understanding truth um, the way it was first passed on to us. And so um, it, it's it's truly um, hindered people's desire uh, to engage in something much deeper or even care about something much deeper. Uh, fragments are uh, sufficient as far as, as taking in info and, and, and believing that to be their truth. Yeah, so he uses an expression... Uh, at the beginning of the book, and it's this is not original to him. This was Marshall McLuhan, who's another technical critic, te- te- technology critic, um, and uh, and and that expression is that the medium is the metaphor. And so I think that that little phrase right there helps us to sort of summarize the the core of Postman's argument. And here's how I would um, here's how I would unpack the meaning of that. You know, medium is the metaphor phrase. So um, I think he means that technologies, the technologies we use, have the power to reshape the way that we understand the world around us, and that technologies actually come um, with um, with Im- embedded meaning that we can't help but absorb. So for instance, he gives the example of uh, something as inane as eyeglasses. So when he, I'll, I'll just read a quote here. He says, eyeglasses, when they were invented, refuted the belief that anatomy is destiny by putting forward the idea that our bodies as well as our minds are improvable. I do not think it goes too far to say that there is a link between the invention of eyeglasses in the 12th century and the gene-splitting research in the 20th. 
eyeglasses radically reshaped the way people viewed the possibilities surrounding how to improve what you you possess simply by nature. And so we were improvable. The medium is the eyeglasses in that case, while the metaphor is what the eyeglasses tell us about the nature of our bodies and the universe around us. Um, also about the way that we should live. So the medium is the tech, and the metaphor is the worldview that comes about as a result of that tech. And so I would say what television taught us as a culture is that entertainment is the highest aim of public discourse. Is it engaging? Is it entertaining? And if it isn't, then it's either not very useful at best or actually qualitatively bad at worst. Right. Another example he uses early on in the book is the telegram. And he talks about the telegram to refer to, which I think is hilarious that he's like, guys, we should have seen it coming with the telegram, you know, hundreds of years ago. Uh, he talks about how the change in the ability to hear what's happening in England in the United States, you know, minutes after it happened uh, for him, uh, the that was the tech and the message or the or the metaphor was we should care what's happening on the other side of the world. And so he talks about the idea that it creates this illusion of the news of the day, that we actually should know what's happening in countries all over the world simply because we have the ability to know within one day everything that's going on everywhere. Right. It creates the illusion of being connected in some of those senses. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm getting ahead of a, where we want to go in this discussion, but I think I think I'd shared with you before, Ben, that um, you know, in, in reading through this, that I started asking myself the question: Were we even designed to absorb that much information? And because he asked the question, how many of you have changed plans based on headlines you read first thing when you get up in the morning that are happening uh, happening halfway across the world? And what are you going to do about it, even though you read it? And so, uh, you know. I found myself overwhelmed sometimes by all the stuff I've, I've just uh, read, and and I've you feel paralyzed almost. Like, how can I address these issues? And so, again, it made me ask this, myself the question: Did God intend for us to absorb that much information at once and and be able to function in a, in a right and healthy way, uh, living out His will for our lives? And so, um, anyway, so, so so one of the things television did to your point, Van, and to your point, Kyle, is it sort of broke down the space time continuum. <laughs> Right. So like no longer were we were we really belonging to local communities. We sort of belonged to the world. And so we were exposed to information and events happening across the planet and across the globe. And that that um, sheer volume of information and 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 how quickly it comes to us, you know, and how often it comes to us. Um, I think it creates a certain paralysis within mm-hmm. us to even even engage with it at any serious level. And so I think we see this even in a Christian universe where, you know, Van, you and I were talking about this over lunch recently, um, how many needs can you, be a, can you be made aware of on a regular basis around the world, people stricken with poverty or illness or whatever the case may be or disaster, and you get these calls for compassion. So we need you to give and help alleviate the suffering of um, someone in Indonesia. And yet I get that news at the same time that I'm getting news about the apartment complex up the street who has a need for a Christmas present drive and the country in England who has a, you know, a crime situation. So we're, we're getting all of this information all at once. I think it creates a paralysis in us. All information is sort of treated equally 
Um, and either you feel like you're accountable for all of that information and should therefore act on all that information, or you just sit back and go, none of it really matters. I'm not going to act on any of it, you know? Yeah, there's the problem of um, charitable overload, you know, and some of that and some of that stuff. I do think, Van, to your question, is it, are we really supposed to know this, all of this? I, I laughed when I read the thing where Postman said, what exactly do you plan to do about all the problems in the Middle East? You know, it's like that kind of pierces the veil, so to speak, and sort of forces you to realize that I'm listening to this. It's occupying my mind space in my time, but it's totally outside of my ability to impact or affect. I think, I think there's at least two places in Scripture where it's pretty clear that there are things we shouldn't know or can't cope with. One of which is in, in the very initial chapters, it's a sort of a first principle in some ways. In the Garden of Eden, the knowledge of good and evil was too great mm-hmm. for human beings, and they were precluded from it. Of course, they they pursued it anyway, mm-hmm. but I think there's a principle there that speaks to how we're made, which is that there are things too great for us to know at some level. I think you see the same sort of phenomenon in God's interaction with Job, where uh, Job actually comes to, God asks him a bunch of questions. Where were you when I did this? Can you do this? Can you do that? Where were you when I did this? You know, I laid the mm. foundation of the world. Yeah. I, I pushed the sea back. You know, I did all these things. Where were you, buddy? And finally, at the end, Job says, ooh, I put my hand over my mouth. There are things too great for me to know. So I think there is a sort of, there are things that can be overwhelming, given the way we're made, that we really can't cope with. Now, I'm not saying TV is that per se. I'm just saying that as a general notion, I think you're right. Well, and not only that, it, it forces us to, as Ben was saying, trivialize or uh, we can't care about all of that all at once all the time. And so it forces us to actually take everything and bring it down to a very low register of of care or sympathy or whatever and so what it does is it actually reduces everything to this level of oh well isn't that sad and then we move on it becomes it becomes useless information not no. simply that it's information overload it tells us in its own way that all this information is actually useless yeah i think the um <clears throat> the danger with taking in all of that at once or on a regular basis is you become numb to everything and you don't you don't deal with the things that you should deal with in your immediate area, whether it be family, church, whatever. So I I've had conversation with my parents. So m- my parents and many people of their generation still watch the nightly news every night before we go yeah. to bed. I don't. I don't. I have no. I need to sleep, <laughs> and yeah. I don't need that. But I'll joke. And Neil Pulsman talks really well about this in the in the book. He talks about our peekaboo world, where he talks about this idea that you're watching this news, and this is just you know the metroplex you're living in and it's like all right and there was a house fire and the whole family died in other news there's a three-legged puppy who needs to be yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now this now this. I mean, that was the terminology <laughs> and, you used. and mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll be sitting there watching the nightly news and they'll talk about some house fire and i'll start laughing and my parents will be aghast at me and they'll be like what are you laughing about i said this is so this is so crazy it's absurdist yeah. that these things are being just tossed next to each other yeah. to your point ben as if they were the same yeah it's a it's a tragedy salad what you get <laughs> given on <laughs> yeah i was just so I, I think um 
So you can become numb on one side of that and not do anything about anything. Um, but on the other side, you know, I'm asking the question, so is there a benefit at all to having the ability now with technology the way that it is to be able to at least be made aware of those things? And I think the answer to that is yes. And all it is to me is a reminder of, <clears throat> excuse me, just how broken our world is. And so, but I, I just, I have to guard against, you know, to his point, what did you intend to do about this or that? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and not, not. What are you going to do about that three legged dog? Like, guys, no. I bought a ticket to the Middle East. I just read an article, yeah. so I'll be back next week. <laughs> I, I got some things to do. I've got a little diplomacy I've got to work yeah. on. Over there. Um, well, that seems to be Dennis Rodman's approach. Yeah. You know, yeah. like anytime he finds yeah. out about something. Um, so, so here's the funny thing. This book was written, it's coming up on its 39th birthday. So this book was written a long time ago, and we're sort of living in the wake of the television revolution. And most of us carry tiny televisions around in our pockets, right? Um, well, almost all of us do now. And so we'll we'll talk about sort of the... Um, uh, the what would you say the progeny of the television and and how that technology sort of gave birth to more technology and the world we're living in today but to go all the way back to the world of television pretending that television is all that exists would you say that neil postman is against television as a thing is he anti-television well he says he's not in the book but you get the feeling <laughs> that he is <laughs> i think he's against the illusion that it's anything other than um, a, a source of lowbrow entertainment. Yeah. It's it's this desire to um, tart it up into something uh, of social value that he objects to. Yeah, he talks about some of the sitcoms and things that are on during his era, and he says, I have no problem with just sort of uh, garbage television. He says, that, honestly, that's probably the best stuff on television. It's the stuff that... Because that's all it's suitable for. Yeah, it? yeah, it's it's only trying to say nothing. Uh, what he objects to is presidential campaign debates on television, where we're having to digest something of substance. He says that's the wrong medium for it, um, which is an interesting thing. I don't think we even ask what is the proper medium for our communication. I mean, unless you're like maybe a marketing manager. Everyone just assumes... Well, I want to say something. It should go on television or whatever. Yeah, I think the thing that struck me in the book was when he talked about the Lincoln-Douglas debates and how, I mean, I think the whole span of it was seven hours, but Lincoln, knowing that he needed more time, encouraged people to go home and eat dinner and then come back, and they did, and sat through that for hours to listen to each man's view about the issues of the day. Uh, I don't know if we're conditioned to do that today. People would... <laughs> You send them home to eat dinner. They're they're going to go to bed or go out after that. <laughs> they're not yeah. Back. yeah, yeah, that's you know? right. I actually bought a copy of the transcripts of the Lincoln Douglas debates after reading this. I wanted to yeah. read those and see how how they engaged on these kinds of questions. Yeah, right. But the fact that the television, to your point, Keith, isn't suited for that kind of rigorous discourse is implied in the fact that whenever people are thinking about individuals who are famous now, they're not thinking about their ideas. They're thinking about their faces. So it's the whole uh, Kennedy-Nixon first televised United States debate and the fact that John F. Kennedy just looked so stinking good on the television. Nixon doesn't have a chance. Well, do you remember when uh, uh, Pence and Kamala debated on TV and the star of the show was the fly on Pence's forehead? 
Yes. <laughs> that's all people could look at, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's when, all, when a fly steals the show, I'm not sure. But that's all that was was talked about, you know, on, on uh, yeah. you know, your social media sites and right. all that. So it's, yeah. Well, so the interesting thing was television came out and then everybody, everybody who had any sort of stake in public discourse, whether it was education or politics or religion, they saw the stage and the platform that television offered and everybody rushed to get uh, 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 some time on that stage. Um, and I think m- mostly what people wanted was the audience that television offered them. <clears throat> and so public discourse was sort of reduced down to this clamoring after larger and larger audiences. And so education had its moment on television, and you had the Sesame Street phenomenon. Even religion had its moments on television, and still does. There's there's entire channels that are devoted to religious entertainment. Um, you know, it's, it's next to, you know, the pay-per-view channel or the sports channel, and then you've got the religion channel, and religion just sort of falls in line with, with all of those things. Why, why did television... Why does Postman say television is not good for those things? Why is it good as cheap junk, right? Like, like he would say America's Got Talent is the most appropriate thing to put on television, <laughs> but that maybe your church service isn't best served by being on television. Why is that the case? I mean, simply put, there's just some things you cannot experience through a television screen. I mean, it requires you being there, you know, Physically, in body, spirit, and mind, and um, also, you know, the way um, again was said earlier, the way TV the shows are framed, content is edited, it's cut out, and so if you think you're getting the full measure of what was intended for worship, it's not going to happen. And he also said there's something to be said about being present when the teaching of God's word. I mean, together, the way it it's received. You know, uh, when you're there versus over the airwaves or the or the screen, it's a little bit different. I, to what degree, I, I don't know, but it's it's not quite the same as being there in person. And so, yeah, and and I would I would go a step further, and I agree with you, but I would say television forces. I would say television is bad for those things because it forces the expectation onto those things that they be entertaining. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it forces education to be entertaining and then what happens is when education isn't on tv but it's in our schools we have the expectation still that it be entertaining and if it's not entertaining then we're not learning the same thing happens to our churches when we put religion on television it transforms the expectations of religion to become well it should be entertaining in the way that it is on television Right, because the the things that work on television are forced into the mold that television takes, so it has to fit a certain amount of time. So it has to be snappy, it has to bounce, it has to be exactly whatever it is, 43 minutes to fit the commercials in in between. You have to have a makeup department for the pastor. I don't know any Baptist church or any other church that has a makeup department for a pastor, but if you put them on television— Well, there's probably churches. (laughs) <laughs> but you have to if you put him on yeah. television because that's the only way he's going to be visually appealing on that medium. And so what it does uh, also is uh, – I like one of the things he put in there is he talks about how uh, you can't see God in the square of the frame, but the biggest person in the frame is the pastor. Yeah. And so the person being worshipped is often not the God he's talking about because that's an idea. It's out of the frame. Right. The thing in the frame is the pastor, and so it becomes a worship of personality, not a worship of God or even ideas. Yeah. 
And and I, I want to I want us to actually lean into an, a whole section of this conversation on the impact of television on the church world, the way we think as churches. Because I would, you know, just sort of preemptively say I believe that his contention with the celebrity preacher on television, he was actually prescient about the celebrity pastor um, phenomenon that we see today, the mega church movement of all these celebrity pastors, the Rick Warrens, the um, Matt Chandlers, the, you know, Mark Driscolls, who are visually engaging. I mean, they are charismatic, far beyond the capacity of the average guy who, who steps into a pulpit. And they get this huge following, you know. Um, I think television taught us to expect that of our pastors. Um, anyway, uh, well, and and information in general. So he talks about like misinformation in a book from 1985, and I was sort of astounded at what I was seeing here because he's talking about information that is misleading because of the form it takes. So even when you're talking about the news, you're having to make news entertaining. It has to be um, fit into a particular form, and so even the information we're getting, whether it's educational, whether it's uh, newsworthy, it also has to. Uh, be bright and shiny, and yeah. the bright and shininess is the important part. I think there's an, another sort of um, the the way that it has come to dominate our our mind space and our cultural context um, <clears throat> has left a lot of people thinking. I think that um, entertainment is uh, an aspirational goal. Being entertained hmm. is an aspirational goal, and so there's a a seeking after entertainment above almost every other human endeavor. So work and creativity sort of are in a back seat to, I'm just doing that so I can get home and be entertained or so I can, you know, watch videos or listen to music or whatever it is. It's, it's, I got to get past the, the, uh, the fact of being human to get to the point where I can just mm. passively consume entertainment. And that's the, I mean, you saw this my whole growing up years with the, pre, you know, the way television existed in homes. And, um, and now, of course, there's a whole shift that's occurred where uh, at that time, at least TVs were confined to specific locations. Mm. Now they're in our pockets and they, we, we never get away from them. Uh, and not only that, but they have the ability to tap us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's haptics and, you know, uh, devices, sensors and things in our phones that will nag us into watching. And so it's it's even worse in terms of this notion that I should constantly have this flow of entertaining, visually entertaining uh, content. Yeah, the, to not be entertained would be a <clears throat> failure of reaching your full potential. So right. I, lo- I, I love that idea, Keith. I wonder if you could help me out here. Do you think there's a difference between being entertained and maybe just being engaged? Like, so, for instance, I feel like most public discourse has always tried to be engaging. Like, I, I can't imagine that Frederick Douglass or Abraham Lincoln were trying to be boring in the way they spoke, though, depending on certain accounts, you may be surprised. Do you think, what do you think is the line where we're just sort of leaning into... I want to be entertained. So, so this gets this gets at I think. First of all, I don't know that I know the answer to that question, but um, <laughs> I think it gets at a principle, though, which mm-hmm. is: um, Does the medium encourage rationality or subjectivity? 
Um, and, you know, there's an interesting quote in the book where he says, he's talking about the distinction between what TV does and what reading does. And I would say even speaking uh Verbal, verbal communication primarily. And he says, almost every scholar who's grappled with the question of what reading does to one's habits of mind has concluded that the process of reading encourages rationality. And I would say that, the, the, you know, confining yourself to entertaining visual content is not, it doesn't encourage rationality in the same way. Although I would say a sermon or a speech encourages the same kind of rationality because um, here's an example. I think there's, I have this long held belief because of stuff I've been aware of in technology and advertising that visual content bypasses uh, rationality portions of your brain. So, and advertisers know this. That's actually Shane Hip's argument in um, uh, Flickering Pixels. Flickering Pixels. Advertisers know this. Here's Here's the typical example. The beer companies, they want young men to drink beer, and so they don't say they don't say these words, but here's the imagery they present. Young men who drink beer are surrounded by attractive women. So now now if if you say those words out loud, it's like, ah ha ha, that's so stupid. No one no one would think that. But when you put that visual imagery in a in a commercial, it seeps in uh becomes a visual parable subrationally mm. right um, it is it is just accepted because it bypasses the 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 uh, brain processing faculties yeah. that you that processing words actually does and this gets to a bigger question I came away with which is this maybe maybe the Bible is textual for a reason and maybe when Paul said faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, it's not, he's saying something more than just, it's based on the content. Maybe he's saying that verbal and and textual communication is the means through which faith comes. Um, and, and that it's not an accident and an artifact of history, because just the technology didn't exist that we have the Bible in written form. I mean, God, who can do any technology he wants, chose to write the Ten Commandments with his own finger into the stone. I asked you to answer some questions, not raise a whole bunch more, Keith. Yeah, That's well, not, I'm, not I'm, good at, I'm good at questions, not so good at answers. <laughs> so, Kyle, I think to, to your original question, um, I, I would hazard a guess and say that in the television age, the onus or the responsibility for engagement has shifted from sort of a mutually mutual responsibility to resting entirely upon the performer. And so it is the performer's responsibility to keep me engaged. And so people who come to those, you know, platforms are passive engagers or passive participants as opposed to active participants. Whereas in the Douglas-Lincoln debates or in, in a literary culture, people are equal participants in the sense that they're, the responsibility was on them to be engaged, to engage themselves in the conversation. Um, and so there, I would say, I would argue that there was some mutual responsibility, mm. whereas in today's culture, if, you know, it's basically we sit back on the couch and say, entertain me. And, and that's entertain a- me. Whoever's most entertaining, I'll give my attention to. 
That's how they decide whether or not that show is going to be canceled because they're, they're looking at viewership after every episode. And depending on those numbers from week to week, your show is either going to make the cut or it's not. Right. And they're going to put another one in that gets higher numbers, right? Interesting yeah. how that happens in church world too. Yeah. And, and what, a, what an amazing critique of putting all these important forms of communication on something like television. Anyone who knows anything about education knows if you train a student to be passive and wait to be – dumbfounded by the information they're never going to learn they have to they have to be trained into engaging mm-hmm. actively yeah with the material so i want to i want to lean into something that you you raised pops about um about how maybe maybe god's truth needs to be communicated through word either either written word or verbal word maybe it's not best communicated through this uh, like a source of television or something right um, and and it really it I think it shines the light squarely on a on a point that he makes in the book which is that truth has to be dressed in appropriate attire hmm. okay that's 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 almost an exact quote from the book that truth has to be dressed in appropriate attire and that every culture really has a preferred attire for truth Um you know, so he kind of gives this hilarious example about um, our society's bias for truth being dressed up in numbers. And, he, you know, we'd laugh at modern economists if they lobbied for major economic changes using, uh, you know, proverbs and parables. Yeah, truth is quantitative in our culture. Right, truth mm-hmm. is quantitative. Mm-hmm. And so um, he actually he actually goes on to say that our culture has substituted certain forms of uh, clothing that we want our truth to be presented in to entertainment. So if if our truth isn't dressed up or trumped up in really entertaining accoutrements, then we don't really. It's probably not good. It's probably not yeah. true. And so people even choose churches based on who has the most, the highest quality of entertainment value. Well, then that pastor is probably telling me the truth. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that that and that training people to look for those kind of things in their communication could actually be detrimental to their ability to grasp the more important things there. Postman actually talks about the second commandment very early on in the book, and he says this: uh, We may hazard a guess that a people who are being asked to embrace an abstract universal deity would be rendered unfit to do so by the habit of drawing pictures or making statues, or depicting their ideas in any concrete, iconographic forms. The God of the Jews was to exist in the Word and through the Word, an unprecedented conception, requiring the highest order of abstract thinking. And so his point being, if you train people to only be able to consume information or important things through some of these mediums, whether it's the image or television or whatever, you're actually potentially reducing their ability to even grasp the content. Yeah, I, I would I would 100% agree. And so let's move forward then in light of that and talk about what are the um, what are television's children mm. and how have those things made what you're describing, Kyle, maybe even more ubiquitous uh, than, than it was in the age of television during the yeah. television revolution. So, so I mean, obviously... Um, this is no mystery. We're talking about smartphones, right. computers, yeah. the internet, um, YouTube. Yeah, golly. Yeah, the ability to have a television that actually engages actively with you, like Keith was talking about, that we can carry around a television is always with us, but then it also 
is communicating about what we should be watching. So the fact that my television is trying to predict what I want to watch next mm. and is trying to learn what is most entertaining to me. So my passivity is increased because not only am I not having to engage once I turn on something to entertain me, but it's actually actively trying to take away even the choice of what I choose to entertain me from me. Right. I think that... Um it inter- I mean, as someone who was kind of involved in in technology during the rise of the internet and sort of the transformation that took place beginning in 1994-95 to what we have today, it's interesting to look back on that <clears throat> because it started out as primarily a, uh, a textual and fixed image medium. Uh, but there was this immediate rush to develop technology to make it basically a gigantic TV. And um, so I think the technologies that exist can, particularly the internet, can be used for other things, but the, you know, the preponderance of um, the traffic on the internet is video-based today. And um, it consumes most of the capacity of the pipes that that comprise that. And I think... um, if you look at what's happened, there's been this rush to build out an infrastructure that can do high bandwidth video transmission directly to individual devices wherever you are so that there's no escaping uh, locations. So I, I do think that it's not for nothing that the rush was to make it a TV. I do think, as I said earlier, that I think it's more problematic than TV because there's no escaping it. Um, mm. if you're going to be in communication, you're going to have a phone in your pocket. And I think that's a whole discussion we should have about whether it should be the case that you have to be in communication all the time. But, um, if you are going to be in communication, you've got to have a phone in your pocket and there, then you're within reach mm. of constant, um, mm. indoctrination. Yeah. You know, uh, I can remember <laughs> gaming on the computer back in 81, 82, was on an apple with a floppy disk and it was all text based so it said yeah. do you want to go west south north east whatever and you just put in in for north and you waited to see what text scrolled up and you know that's how you were gaming and then when yeah. the video popped up you're like wow that really drew people in even more yeah. well and even the idea of gaming being an interactive form of image based communication so like people have talked about the idea that you have games where you're acting out things in a digital form that you would never experience in the real world. I mean, I'm thinking of like first person shooters. I'm thinking of uh, GTA five, you know, the grand theft auto it's people who are actually acting out, making choices within a story in a visual based medium that actually allows us to experience to some extent making these choices we would never experience in the real world. And that's got to have a profound effect on, who we are, what kind of choices we're making, and kind of how we perceive our life. You know, one of the things... you okay? (laughs) You know, Van's dropping his stuff. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I think is a kind of a paradox of this in some ways, I think about this some, is that the habits of mind that are cultivated by uh, this kind of technology are the inverse of the habits of mind required to create this kind of technology. So if you're, if you're an engineer who's doing work in this space, you are, you have to be very oriented toward sustained focus 
uh, not being distracted by entertainment. Uh, you have to master certain content information fields. You have to think rationally. Uh, and you have to do this over long extended periods of time without interruption. And this is almost the exact opposite of what the technology is created to do. And so you have an entire class of human beings who are building technology that the effect of which is to dissipate the lives of the majority of human beings hmm. who, who become drawn into that. And it's an interesting, um, probably worth thinking about some more at some point, um, the distinction between the ability to create these things and the passivity and dissipation of consuming these things. Hmm. It's almost like drug dealers. So, hmm. you know, I, I want to ask the question, is there something in... Um, in Christian theology or thinking that that would predispose us to be somewhat suspicious of technology and technological advancements. But I don't think it's actually worth asking because if you look around, by and large, Christians have just taken up, you know, swallowed hook, line, and sinker, the next mode of communication or technology that um, that's come down the pipe. We're, we're just like most of the people around us in our culture. And so... I, I guess I want to say, why is that? I mean, since like the Anabaptists and the Amish, there hasn't really been a movement among Christians that has challenged te- the, the, the promises made by technological progress and advancement. Why do, you, why do you think that is? And do you think Christians should be more discerning about entertainment and the kinds of not not I don't mean the content on entertainment but the ubiquity of it the constancy right. of it um, should Christians be like are, are is it weird that we're not more discerning hmm. what'd you guys say well yeah. I think it's definitely weird um, <laughs> but um, but I think there may be reasons for it. Um, so, man, I don't even know where to start with this, but I'll just say that um, I think, particularly in the West, maybe, uh, I, I'll only speak to the West because I'm that's where I am. I'm not anywhere else and I can't comment. But what I observe is that many of us in the West have reduced the question of faith and wisdom down to merely the question of whether or not um, we're saved. And we have not seen the biblical text as a source of wisdom about, you know, we interpret, you know, prohibitions against adultery as a question about, um, you know, salvation and sin, which it is, I mean, in, you know, as a first principle. But it's also God's teaching about marriage is is teaching us something about human flourishing and what we're for, right? In in the world as we're living our lives here, and so this question about, um, I think we don't we look we don't look at every new ad- advance in technology and ask, does this contribute to human flourishing? And based in a very grounded biblical view of what constitutes human flourishing. We just say that's, you know, there's nothing, it's not going to, you know, you can be saved and watch TV, so we, mm. we're just not going to address ourselves to the question of entertainment, uh, 
um, we're going to talk about, we're going to interpret everything in this sort of um, narrow context of whether the use of it, you know, invalidates our salvation in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I think a truly holistic understanding of the biblical text would say salvation is the starting point for a whole life of pursuits. And does any of these technologies fit within the pursuits that we're called to? Mm. I think it's a. I think there's something there about uh, having a kind of a parochial focus mm-hmm. in evaluation criteria that doesn't take in all that God intends for us to be. Mm-hmm. I would say too, in the context of communication technologies, Christians have had an interesting part to play, especially since we've created a lot of information technologies. Like the book was partially like a, a Christian idea. We wanted a better way to present the scriptures. Now that's a bit, a, a bit of a, a, a step instead of a skip. But I would also say this. I think we're attracted to new communication technologies and we're tempted to not be critical because of the promise, look at how many people we could reach. And the Great Commission is all about reaching people. And so I think as Christians, we're, we're tempted by the the numbers that some of these communication technologies can offer us and we're maybe not as quick to Keith's point of asking but what quality of communication are we really achieving yeah it's like it's like we were so dazzled by what television might do to the size of our audience we never stopped to consider what it might do to the quality of our message yeah yeah um and and i think that we see that even in the way that we do church now and so for me it's not just what's taking place on television but how television has shaped what yes. we're doing we're not on television. So I'm going to just read a couple of quick quotes here from, from the book to explain what I mean. So he says, All public understanding of these subjects, politics, news, education, religion, science, sports, is shaped by the biases of television. What I am claiming here is not that television is entertaining, but that it has made entertainment itself the natural format for the representation of all experience. The result of all this is that Americans are the best entertained and quite likely the least well-informed people in the Western world. And I would say never in the history of the church has Christian worship been more entertaining than it is today. But the average Christian probably can't tell you what are the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I resemble those remarks, and so I'm a little bit upset about that. But I would say, too, it's you can see that this is the case in the way people talk about churches. They'll visit a church, and they'll say something like, I really liked. And it doesn't matter what goes after that sentence, because you've just told me how you're evaluating that church. You liked something about it. You were entertained by something about it. Now, some people mean more than that when they say it, but that's the baseline of critique. Did I enjoy it? It's like, that was what you were looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to shape the kind of church you find, actually, yeah. which is, it's probably sh- showing us what kind of churches survive. Well, it's also interesting that we, we've sort of transitioned in our architecture in church from um, the front being the altar yeah. uh, to the front being the stage. Yes. Right? So So now we... All that we do in worship takes place upon a stage, and we want the appropriate, uh, you know, televised accoutrements um, so for e- a stage. Even the even the, the shape of the auditorium, we even call it an auditorium now. Like we literally use the word for like performance space. Is uh, we we've gone to like the fan where 
every the whole room is designed so that every seat can see the center of the stage versus the the basilica the cross where there are literally chunks of the room where you're designed not to be able to you, see you can't see very well <laughs> and if you go to like a, a liturgical church the first time i went to a liturgical service i was really frustrated because there'd be portions of the service where people had their backs turned towards me people were talking to each other <laughs> at the front i couldn't hear and it's what's like, going on up there yeah. <laughs> and i had this profound sense that it wasn't about me and that frustrated me <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I want to read another quote here um, to color the discussion about how television culture, entertainment culture, has shaped the way we think about what we're doing in church. The executive director of the National Religious Broadcasters Association sums up what he calls the unwritten law of all television preachers. You can get your share of the audience only by offering people something they want. You will not, I am sure... Um, uh, you will find, I am sure, that this is an unusual religious credo. There is no great religious leader, from the Buddha to Moses to Jesus to Muhammad to Luther, who offered people what they want, only what they need. Though their messages are trivial, the shows, these religious shows have high ratings, or rather, because their messages are trivial, the shows have high ratings. I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. And I I think even many pastors and teaching teams sort of filter what they're willing to teach in the pulpit through the lens of will this be engaging. I mean, I'm I'm guilty of this myself. Like if we studied Leviticus in the pulpit, I'm thinking, okay, are our people going to sit there? How do we how do we retain an audience when every church is clamoring for the same market share of religious mm. consumers? And everyone's trying to entertain the religious masses better than the other church. How do we retain our audience, not our members, not our congregants, but our audience if we offer a, a, a two-year-long discourse on Deuteronomy? Right? Well, that would be better than Leviticus. I'll just weigh in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we're voting. If, if we're taking votes. If we're voting, yeah, I would go for that over Leviticus. <laughs> yeah. And what else do you see? I mean, this is the, the, the culture of entertainment, I think, has radically reoriented even our family life. Mm. Not just religious life, but family life. I've, I've long believed that a father teaches a value system with his eyes. Yeah. And so whatever a dad is paying attention to, his kids will learn matters most. And in my house, if you had to get, if you, if you polled my kids, all two of them, what? <laughs> it's not a very exhaustive, you know, expansive poll. But um, if you if you ask them what matters most to dad, based on what he pays attention to, I mean, I would have to. They would probably have to say phone or television or computer, some mm. form of screen that occupies my mind and attention, mm. right? Or just the fact that we can't be doing something productive without having something to entertain us while we're doing it. Almost like, uh, you know, we can't we can't make it without it. So if we're doing the dishes, we have to be listening to a podcast. And if you're going to listen to the Lake Ridge Faith and Culture podcast, or <laughs> which you are, which you are, um, or uh, you have to be listening to music, uh, or you have to be uh, have a TV on in the background. Um, we don't allow ourselves to have silence. Uh, yeah, I think the silence thing is big because I think uh, the need for constant um, input. Um, precludes contemplation mm -hmm. um, and thought, you know, just quiet, thoughtful contemplation. Now, having said that, I think verbal input is far better than visual input. And I think we're more susceptible to deception 
with visual input than we are with uh, verbal input. And for the reasons I discussed earlier, which I think the visual input bypasses rationality. There's a there's a reality which is that visual content, and I think this explains TV and explains a lot of other things about our techno technological moment. Uh, I think that um, visual content is enchanting, as in spell casting. Mm. I think visual, because of the way we're wired visually, it can draw us in and engage us in ways that um, is less rational than verbal content. And I think that for that reason, it's dangerous, actually. It's effective, but also dangerous. So Shane Hibbs in his book, Flickering Pixel, makes this point, and he says, um, if, I, if you read the sentence, the boy is crying, your, your analytical mind will say, okay, what boy? Where? Why is he crying? What's happening? It'll ask all the questions that analysis demands. But if you're shown a picture of a, a sub-Saharan African boy crying in a ditch, then it immediately bypasses all of those faculties and you're moved toward compassion by what you see. He uses that as an example for how images bypass the analysis part of our brain to the effective portion of our emotions. You and, know, and that can be good in, when we're actually encountering a boy in a ditch crying, right? Right. Um, but I think, I think Satan, in insidious ways, tells us stories and has done this in our culture. He shows us visuals and tells us stories through movies and television shows that lie to us and move past our analytical faculties to get us to believe what he's saying about that situation is true. Yeah, so when you're shown news clips over incidents that have happened over the past couple of years and you saw the massive protests that out, you know, that started to break out as a result of, you know, police involvement with individuals and you don't get the details of what led up to it, but find those things out after the fact, your mind starts to change. You don't feel like you did immediately when you saw the video of what took place, right? Um, and so to your point, I think we're um, – It'd be helpful if if you step back and and got the uh, more content and, and detail of what led up to that instead of just taking in a visual of it and reacting and that's what we see happening within society and so people are in this uproar but nobody cares about knowing truly knowing what was going on that led up to to things that got people so worked up you know it might might have changed their perspective on things and I think this even leads to a a devaluing of certain kinds of people. I think we're now sort of creating ourselves into entertaining caricatures of ourselves. We're, we're trying to be as entertaining as possible so that if you meet a new person and they're not immediately entertaining or, or, or something wow about them right off the bat, you sort of, you sort of write them off. And, well, and people don't have the patience to understand or relate to each other. Yeah, social media has led a lot of people to believe that they are – the star of their own reality TV show. Mm -hmm. And the technology enables them to mm -hmm. to produce their own reality TV show just by wandering around with their phone. And so so I, I want to ask a question. We're going to have to wrap this conversation up. We're to a point now where um, we've probably, I mean, we have much more to say to you, but you cannot bear to hear it now, to quote Jesus. Um, <laughs> what, what I'd like to finish with a reflection on with each of you, starting with you, Pops, is, how do you internalize this personally? How, what, what are the takeaways from the book at a personal level? What are you walking away with? How's this going to impact your life? Well, you know, I'm old and crusty, and so I, I, uh, 
it's been some time since I uh, was all enamored with TV and video content. I'm also deeply immersed in the technology industry, and so I have my own set of um, skepticism about the technology itself. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, I don't watch TV. I, I find, you know, is the closer I get to the grave, the more I think I need to use my time more, more wisely. And to me, that's just a big, giant, fat waste of my time to watch TV. Um, so I just don't do that. I read more. I, I create more. I, I do more writing. I, do, I build more things. So as, at a personal level, I just opt out. And here's one thing. At a, at a technology level, here's something I do that I think is really practical that people can do. Turn off all notifications on your phone and in every app on your phone. Make it such that you are in control of your attention. And then if you are so addicted to video streaming that you're on video streaming, that's one thing. But don't let your phone nag you into it. Even when I'm trying to do real work, even sitting in my workplace, I turn off notifications from Microsoft Outlook. Because if I don't, it's gonna be shoving stuff in my face, making me pay attention to that instead of the thing I want to be working on. Mm -hmm. And so I think pro preclude any ability of technology to nag for your attention in any form. And so if you're gonna use apps, if you're gonna use social media, turn off notifications completely so that you have to proactively go there in order to have it, to, in order to give it your attention. Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, people say, I got to see it to believe it. After reading this book, uh, I'd say, you got to read it to believe it. <laughs> so, yeah. print is, uh, yeah, there you, go. you know, get your truth. So, um, nothing wrong with seeing, but yeah, I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to start telling people, I got to read it to believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. I think for me, I really want to be better about taming my television. Um, so, I. I have definitely leaned in much harder, probably than Keith asked for sure, into the world of digital media, digital entertainment, the television, the internet. I mean, that is the 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 water I'm swimming in if I'm a fish. And so I I really want to reclaim my attention and my and my heart, and my mind from those things. I want to find better ways to fill my days, and I think some of that is. Um, me holding the leash instead of letting the screen hold the leash on me kind of thing. So really deciding, hey, these are hours of my day where I don't care what's going on. I'm not in front of a screen. You know, just choosing those hours. And in particular, I really want those to be the last few hours of my day because I find that's where it can run away with me because I'm too tired to have up walls to say, you know, I just need to go to bed or, you know what, I, this is not worth my time. Um, devoting those evening hours to good call good conversations or uh reading a book or or just simply being with the lord and being with the people around me uh i don't think we give enough credit to our lack of rest in our culture coming from a obsession with being entertained and i'd like to stop that yeah so you know i i, re I just read this book for the second time the first time i ever read it was 20 years ago i was an undergraduate student and the first time I read it, I didn't have a lot of patience for Neil Postman. The first half of his book, I thought um, he was sort of um, 
<laughs> insensitive in the way he was taking that axe to the root of the idol in my life, um, entertainment. And, uh, and so I, I didn't really care for it. By the end of the book, I thought, you know, boy, this is really convicting. It was the first time I'd been convicted by something other than Scripture. Um, I thought, wow, he's really on to something, you know. And um, now 20 years removed, I see really what the legacy of this book has been and the kind of technologies that, you know, demand our attention and um, occupy so much of our time. Um, and and there's, there was a quote from the book that I want to I read here. That um, that I gets at the heart of I think where I I think as I I think as I respond to this book or reflect on this book it's as a pastor, and then maybe as a father but for some reason more as a pastor in this moment, uh, at this time in my life reading it. But here's the quote: It says, "Who is prepared to take arms against a sea of amusements? To whom do we complain and when and in what tone of voice when serious discourse dissolves into giggles? What is the antidote to a culture's being drained by laughter?" It is much later in the game now, and ignorance of the score is inexcusable. To be unaware that a technology comes equipped with a program for social change, to maintain that technology is neutral, to make the assumption that technology is always a friend to culture is, at this late hour, stupidity, plain and simple. Here is ideology, pure if not serene. Here is ideology without words and all the more powerful for their absence. All that's required to make it stick is a population that devoutly believes in the inevitability of progress, and in this sense, all Americans are Marxists. For we believe nothing if not that history is moving us towards some preordained paradise, and that technology is the force behind that movement. I think, I think for me as a pastor, it's how do we, how do we disillusion disciples of Jesus from that notion that all technology is your friend? How do we do this in our homes as, as fathers, as husbands? Um, I, 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 can't, I can't see any other way forward other than it has to be sort of a collective agreement. And we're not going to let these things dominate our minds and attention. And we're going to, our covenant together as members has to mean something more to us than the entertainment value that our worship services provide. You know, if we hop, skip, and jump to the next church simply because they've got a better stage or they've got a more compelling and charismatic preacher or they've got a better online worship service, which we see so often, um, then, I don't know, I think, I think we're ju- we just continue to lose to the entertainment culture. Um, and I guess as pastors, we got to find a way to, to move formation of souls back up to the top of the list of our priorities. Um, rather than, um, you know, the entertainment of our people, you know. So I guess that's where I sit. That's how I reflect as a pastor. Any closing thoughts from you guys? Yeah, ditto. I mean, that's in my prayers that we never rely on entertainment for what we do and worship here, you know. Yeah, I would I would hope that the story of my life is not that I was well entertained, but that I was well sanctified. I think that would be a lot better story. Yeah. Amen to that. I think also um, just encouraging uh, those who are part of our community to live lives of true human flourishing, which is very distinct from lives of passive consumption and dissipation. Um, the, the, what God calls us to is to be fully human 
to draw people to Jesus Christ and then to live lives of full humanity, which isn't reflected by um, a passive, slack-jawed devotion to uh, streaming media. We're going to continue that conversation in another podcast episode called The Cult of Comfort. And so we hope to see you there.